What an amazing uh, joy to eventually crack the nod from the <laughs> Gateway Elders uh, to preach here. This has actually been an amazing uh, year for Sue and I. If you think of coming out of two years of COVID and in South Africa, it was like torture. But uh, yeah, this year, I've traveled more in this year than in any other year, which is quite cool to get back into seeing what God is doing in the world. But also some delightful little firsts. I caught my first Maui with you on the boat in North Carolina, 40 miles out to sea. Uh, he caught many, but I, I just felt the thrill of my first opportunity. And then we had it like a sushi and all of that. I know you're hungry. I know you want to get home for lunch. And then uh, in July this year, uh, Ryan Tumasazen managed to, to uh, get us tickets to the British Open. And we went to, I went with my son, my actual son, Ryan Wallace, to preach at uh, Son of the House here, Ian Kennedy's place, Glasgow Grace. And he set up accommodation for us with his folks in Ely, which is 20 minutes from St. Andrews. 150th British Open. I'm a golfer. So to go to that at the home of golf was another first. And then I've just been with Pitt Wallace in Switzerland at his church last month, and their bunch of men took me down to Monza. I know I'm just like, <laughs> I'm just feeding your, your green eye, your envy. And, uh, and I'm not a petrol head, but it was quite interesting just to be with all these guys that are like, how many of those Grand Prix guys are in the room here? You, you like, yeah, I, I, I understood why for the first time. We were in the actual stands looking over the pits when all those dudes, I, I'm now like a seasoned, like I know all the names of the drivers and all that, not quite. But hey, first opportunity here to preach in Gateway. I think it just passes, surpasses all those other lesser things. So, I think if you are like me and you read newspapers and you look at the state of the world, it's been like the last few years, has been like one of the most both interesting and like uh, you've got to find the word to describe the state of the world and the fault lines that are in place politically, economically, the stuff going on in, in America, the polarization of politics, the stuff going on in Ukraine, you know, Russia stuff and China and Taiwan and Africa and our, you know, in Paris they turned the lights off at the Eiffel Tower in honor of the, the passing of the Queen. And we're great fans of, of the Queen in South Africa. I don't say everyone in South Africa, but, but the people I know, we just admire her. She's been like a rock through so many generations. So the lights go off on the Eiffel Tower, but in South Africa, our power utility, ESCOM, has turned the lights off permanently six hours a day. Unfortunately, not in honor of the Queen, just uh, as a monument to some of our competency factors. All that to say, we're experiencing a world that is like best described as, I just, I just use the word crazy, because in my 67 years on the planet, uh, my adult years particularly, I, I never, uh, uh, I, I, I can't ever remember a period like the one we've had in, in the last four or five years with COVID just sort of introducing us to all these dynamics. Uh, do you ever feel like that's a good word? You might have a better word, crazy, for the world, but that's kind of the easiest way. And I'm hoping today to preach a message from the book of Jeremiah uh, with gospel application that will make us 
less overwhelmed by the world and less underwhelmed by Jesus. We need to get overwhelmed by Jesus and we need to place the folk lines of the world and history uh, in their context. And I'm hoping that we'll freshly find the sufficiency of uh, an understanding of God's sovereignty. So I'm going to read Jeremiah chapter 29. Some of these thoughts I forgot to mention. The first mess, uh, talk was, uh, you know, we've got from over the years from Tim Keller. I've so imbibed it and owned it and put some of my own angles on it. Unfortunately, Tim let us down and didn't have many of my thoughts. So I thought you'd just get me. Okay. Jeremiah 29, it's on the screen. If you didn't bring your Bible, bring it next time, but follow on the reading. I'm learning the in-house culture here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving exiles, elders of the exiles, and to the priests and the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah, and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elisa, the son of Shaphan, and uh, Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, here's the letter to the exiles. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit, produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise, and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all nations where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is God's word. Let's bow our hearts before God and before his most holy word. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege of serving your people. I humble myself before you and pray that you would choose in your grace and goodness to feed your people, strengthen your people, nourish your people, secure your people through this message today. Thank you that you are the author and the finisher of our faith. You are the first and the last, the beginning and the end. You're the Alpha and Omega. You're the one 
who started it all, you get to finish it all, climax it all. And at the end of history, we will be amazed at how wonderfully you do that. So we welcome your spirit into this room. We ask you to help us in both my speaking and our listening together. And that Gateway Church would be significantly strengthened for those plans and purposes that are in your heart for this church going forward. Everybody said, Amen. Apologies from Sue, who's not with us, my wife of 46 years, mother of two children, six grandchildren, amazing person. So one of the big tasks of leadership and preachers in, is we, we need to help people define reality, what's real, and we also need to bring hope in the light of that. And uh, when I look at the state of the world and our our fight to be able to even define reality, what is ultimate objective reality, that conversation's always up for grabs. But preachers have to, against the backdrop of God's word, continually have to redefine, interpret for the people of God what, our, what the reality is that we're called to. Uh, but unfortunately, and let me use this illustration, it's, it's, it's one I thought of, it, it, it has its weaknesses, don't overwork this one. It's called the gospel horse illustration. If you've got a horse with a saddle, it's got two stirrups. The one stirrup is called reality, and the other stirrup is called hope. Okay? Whenever we define reality, we also need to bring hope. But sometimes we get the balance wrong, and when we are moving forward on the gospel horse, we sometimes are putting too much weight on this thing of reality. And so we're great at being able to articulate everything that's wrong in the world and can live with a sense of despair. And that's what happened. We become gloomy pessimists. Okay? And remember, you've got to be able to measure yourself now because I'm going to ask you which side of the saddle are you leaning and then on the other side, you've got people who just have to have hope. They just can't bear the thought of not having a happy ending to everything. And so their desire, when they read a newspaper, they just read all the things that are wonderful and glorious. When they read their Bible, it's all the promises underlined that make for a better life and, and reduce our sense of discomfort or, or pain. Uh, what's wonderful about the scriptures is that the way God speaks to us in a broken, crazy world is he never gets us to want to neglect or ignore reality, but neither does he want us to become although, you know, so consumed with uh, you know, wealth, health, wealth, and prosperity and the fairy story ending for everything that, that, that we, we, we live you know, sort of uh, 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 unrealistic, we have unrealistic uh, uh, expectations of the kind of life we can have here. Folk, the world is broken, and the folk lines that we're seeing and reading about are all the same. So here's the good news. The Bible does not want to feed our sense of gloomy pessimism. Neither does it want to feed our sense of sunny optimism. It wants to feed our sense of biblical reality, our biblical realism. We're there to say, actually, we can live on both poles because God is involved in both sides of our journey, the side of eternity. And so we don't have to have, uh, if we so overdevelop this, then we have tantrum 
kind of spirituality when things, life is not working like it should. So have you worked out which one you are? That's, just tell your husband and wife quickly which one you think they are. Okay. I'll never be invited back. So here's what I want us to really get. Even if we want to use that verse to feed our optimism. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to give you a hope and a future. How many of you use that in a, in a birthday card or in a greeting to somebody or somebody's going through a difficult time? We send that. It's not wrong, but I want you to get the fact that when the prophet Jeremiah says that to the people of God in exile, he's both defining the reality and he's bringing hope. And I want us to unpack that a little because I think God gives us a beautiful way to live in this world where we, 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 we hold those two things in tension. So remember, fear lives and rules in the heart of the believer who has forgotten God's sovereignty and grace. And if left to myself, I really should be afraid. But the good news of the gospel is that God in Christ has not left us to ourselves. He's gatecrashed the world. He came and lived among us. He's raised from the dead. He's the head of the church that we're a part of. He has not left us to ourselves to make our way in the world as though he were not a living reality in our lives. The message of the gospel is that I have not been left to myself. I've been called to a life that is in union with Emmanuel, the God who is with us in all the seasons of life. And so security is not the absence of danger. Security for us who believe in the doctrines of sovereignty of grace, our security is defined by the presence of God in the midst of all the craziness and uncertainty. It's who's with us, friends, that is gonna take us forward. So a bit of a background to Jeremiah chapter 29. Your homework is chapter 26, 27, 28. You will read it by 3 o'clock this afternoon. Okay, when you've got a gap, read it, because it really is intriguing. What goes on there is what I call the prophecy wars between a company of prophets under the leadership of Hananiah and, and Jeremiah, who in his moment is defining the reality and is trying to bring hope Hananiah is only wanting to bring hope. He's, one, he's telling everybody, you're only going to be in captivity for a short amount of time, and everything's going to be hunky-dory. Is that, is that a term you use here, hunky-dory? Everything is going to be very wonderful, and uh, yeah, it's going to be joy on steroids and, and without drugs. And And then you see this toing and froing between the two in this chapter 26. Uh, Jeremiah comes along and tells the people, "Don't get all those, uh, don't get go into get in, form allies with all those surrounding nations because you've been lied to by Hananiah, who's telling, feeding, he's feeding the narrative that actually Nebuchadnezzar is going through a bit of a crisis." because he's had some political interference from other nations in Babylon on the borders. So, hey, everything's going to be turned around. This is our moment to join Nebuchadnezzar's enemies and, and get all that first wave of exiles back to Jerusalem. This is our opportunity to get <clears throat> temple worship restored with all the goods coming down. Our priests are coming back. It's going to be fantastic. And uh, uh, Jeremiah comes in with his wooden yoke around his, his neck, like a yoke with oxen, and this is a prophetic symbol that Israel is called by Yahweh 
the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who had warned them that if they went walkabouts, if they went into idolatry, they would eventually go into exile to a land that was not their own, and they would be under God's firm hand of discipline. This is not the rejection of God's people. This is God loving his people enough to say, uh, uh, you, 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 you need to come back to me. You need to repent of your idolatry, your temple worship with, uh, uh, with, with all the idols, etc., etc. And Hananiah comes and he, he there's, there's quite a humiliating moment if you read in the text. He takes the wooden yoke and he breaks it in front of everybody. Great like fanfare. You've got to be very careful of people with a lot of exhibitionism. Sometimes the exhibitionism is, is camouflaging a whole lot of rubbish. And so he breaks it off and he says to all the priests, this is in the temple, the leaders, the political leaders, they're all gathered. He breaks it off and he says, this is what's going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar, which is code for don't listen to Jeremiah. God is going to bring us all back here. And, and so it's like Wimbledon, to and fro between the, the two. Jer, uh, 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 Jeremiah uh, listens to this and he actually gives an Amen to Hananiah, but it was a little bit tongue-in-cheek. He said, amen, I wish it was so. And then he goes off uh, home and uh, humiliated, and then God comes to him. I love it. Sometimes you've got to just wait for God to come and have, speak his word. And God says to him, go and tell Hananiah that what he's spoken is not true, that I didn't send him, and that he's going to die for deceiving my people. And so Jeremiah always has a tough task. He's always seemingly swimming upstream. He, he has a hard message that he has to carry, but he carries it faithfully. He's one of the heroes of the faith. And he goes down, he tells Hananiah, what you're doing is deceitful. Now, the problem is that there was a home game in Jerusalem where Hananiah is prophesying to the, 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 the locals, but he also had this entourage of prophets in, that had gone in the first uh, exile, and those guys are drip-feeding the lies and undermining uh, the, the flourishing of the people of God in exile. And, uh, and so Jeremiah now writes, he, 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 he says, you're going to die, and exactly that happens probably two months after he said that. Before the end of the year, he dies, and, uh, and then he writes the letter because the damage is being done down the road in their way match, and so he prophesies. And this is, this is the message that, that he brings. And essentially what he's saying to the people of God, this isn't, this isn't about Israel, and it's not about Babylon. It's about Yahweh. It's about God who has plans that are universal and benign, and he will step into history from time to time, and he will shake things up a bit. And that he's not obligated primarily to make sure that they're his, Israel is his favored people, but not his favorite people. And there are many stories of God disciplining his people, this notion that, that they are God's uh, uh, favorite people. I think we should honor our roots and all that stuff, so don't hear what I'm not saying. But this is a moment where God, in his holiness, shows himself to be sovereign and holy and, 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 and acts into history in quite intentional ways. And he's having to come to his people who are bruised, who are feeling the shakeup, and there's a sense of insecurity, and he's now, through Jeremiah, he's def- the, the reality is we're not home, we're in trouble, the world is, is a horrible place to live, but he's coming with a message that is now strengthening the people of God in exile. And he comes to tell them 
that they're still his people, but he's asking them to live in a particular way in these times of uncertainty. And I think there's wonderful, rich gospel application for us to be the people of God in Gateway, in Cape Town, in, in uh, every part of the world, this would have an application. And he comes with tender love through the prophet Jeremiah. He's, God's not angry. There's tender love. And what he asks the people to do is totally countercultural, counterintuitive. Who would think of this way to live in a broken world? And so the letter starts with, uh, he, he is addressed to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar taken away from Jerusalem. Verse 4, it says, uh, Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, to all who were, carry, who were carried away captive, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem. It wasn't, it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is just a pawn. Somebody God uses and ultimately bears witness to God's work in the world because we can't get sidetracked. But here's what God says to his people. Five things. Number one, he says, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat their produce, get rooted, socially, economically active. He's saying move all the way in, in a world that's crazy and uncertain, don't withdraw, don't move to the margins, don't say, oh, I, I, don't, I don't wanna be in this horrible world, give me a nice island somewhere where I can just live and put up the walls and hopefully it can be in a golfy state or something like that. What had happened is some of the exiles were just outside the city near the Kibal River and they were like a, a little bit of like, like weekends away in Southampton. You know, use, use the city to economically enable me to live my actual life that I'm dreaming about. And uh, essentially, Yahweh is saying to his people, I want you to move all the way in. I want you to, to, to get your roots down. He's trying to remind them that if they're his people, here's the beauty, is his people can flourish anywhere, whether they're in Israel, in the safety of their best memories, or whether they're even in exile. Yahweh is with them. He wants them to know. It doesn't really matter the state of politics in the nation, the state of economies. Yes, those things affect us, but what we are always wanting to feed is that Israel has always been a fruitful vine. He says to Joseph, you're a fruitful vine near a spring growing over a wall. He says, I want you to know there's enough to sustain you no matter what happens. It's a fruitful vine. And vines, I've just been in... in uh, at a wine farm fairly recently in the south of France. I know I sound like a jet traveler everywhere. I don't, don't believe that. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's just a blessing. It's another first. In a vineyard, a 60th birthday. But one of the winemakers there, he took us to this. They were, he showed us why they don't water the vines. I thought, how will the thing survive? How will it grow? And he said, no, we don't water because if you water vines... The soil only has about two or three meters of, of actual water, and then the vines get lazy, and their roots go sideways. They don't go down. He says, so hardship 
and, and no artificial sustaining of the vine. The vine itself in its genetics has a very healthy ability to survive. Folk, I hope you can hear that the church Jesus is building has got a very healthy spiritual genetic that can flourish and survive no matter what. It's done it for 2,000 years. And just because the world is crazy does not mean the world in which we are doing life and ministry is under threat. We're designed for hardship and difficulty. We're just not used to it. And uh, I think you grow more in a fiery furnace, metaphorically speaking, than in a jacuzzi. The only thing that grows in a jacuzzi is algae. Okay. So why do we want to move all the way in, get rooted in this beautiful city of pool? I mean, I went there yesterday. I just, let, me, let me just whinge a little. I've been here three times, okay? Matt has never taken me to show, show the harbor. I've never seen the harbor. It is absolutely stunning and beautiful. I walked on the beach uh, through, through uh, the wharf for Goose. Who has a male dog called Goose? Okay. I love the dog. Yeah, that's beautiful dog. Such a nice dog. I'm staying with our better behave. Okay. I'm just saying. Uh, there are people that have to, you know, that, that could live in far worse places than here. So when we start to always think through the lens of economics, we've got to ask some simply question, God, where have you called me? And we've got to commit to being God's people in that place. We've got to develop a theology of place. Act 17, that says he has determined the exact place and season where we should live. And he's done that so men might call upon him. We're in where we are, not primarily to exploit the city and the place for economic benefit. We're there to, to yes, we need to become economically active, but be a presence that's there for the long haul unless God moves us elsewhere. And you can come to the UK if you're South Africans. I don't want anybody feeling bad. You can leave the best place in the whole world to come to the second best place. And God can work so wonderfully in you that you're feeling like it's the best place in the world. Okay. Okay, Grace, forgive me for that. Here's the point. Why do we do this? Because Jesus moved all the way in. From the throne of glory, he came into history. As this beautiful bundle of baby in Bethlehem, lived this human life fully identifies with us. He knows exactly what we're going through. There's no Christian at any moment in history that can say, God doesn't know what I'm going through. Oh, he does. And he lived the full human experience, was tempted in every way, and yet was us, and he moved. He didn't live at the margins. He was all in, in terms of that. But he's more than all in, from a biblical point of view. This incarnated second person of the Trinity is described as having pitched his tent among us, or as Eugene Peterson says, moved fully into the neighborhood. And I just feel like part of what God wants us to do, yes, even in the craziness of the world, is not back off, move all the way in, and start to get excited about being the people of God who he calls elect exiles in 1 Peter chapter 1. Number two, he says, stay distinct. We're not called to resemble our culture or echo it. If, if we're going to be an echo of our culture, 
then just close the church down because just join the culture. We're called to be distinct, to be that city set on a hill that shines and radiates the light of the truth of the gospel. So we're not different or distinct because we, we don't want to wear earrings or we're not going to have a tattoo and we're saying we're distinct or burn all what I did when I was a teenager. I burnt all my beautiful Led Zeppelin albums and all that stuff. And now we go and buy them. or well, not necessarily, no, you know, the who and, okay, now let me get there. The, the, the point is, the kind of distinctives we've got to remember is that Nebuchadnezzar had a plan for the people of God in Israel, and his plan was to assimilate them into the culture. So he didn't just kill everyone. No, no, he, the, this was pure gold. What was the pure gold? The cream of Israeli society, pure gold. The guys who were the, yes, he had the, the political leaders coming down. Maybe they could be re-educated in the Babylonian system of things. The priests, maybe they, over a period of time, would just give up on Yahweh and they could, you know, learn a few tricks from the Babylonians. But they really wanted the next level. They wanted the craftsmen, the metal workers. They wanted those guys. That's the equivalent of the high professionals of the day. And the idea was just 10 or 20 years down the road, those guys would no longer remember where they come from. They'd be so comfortable in the new home. They're so uh, immersed in the culture. And friends, I think that's what our danger is. Sometimes we can over-identify with the world in which we, we're living. We just so want to be relevant. We so want to be liked. And eventually, we're no longer distinct. The other option was be separate. Like, you know, withdraw from, uh, from society like the Jewish guys did at the Kibar River and, and don't get too, too involved. Uh, you know, we're, we're different. But the difference was... Uh, in a sense, quite selfish because it didn't do anybody any good. It was more about self-preservation than it was about being a blessing. And so God's first thing, he says, uh, um, the second thing he says to them is, uh, I don't want you to be assimilated and I don't want you to be separate. I want you to move all the way in, but be a prophetic presence. Be presence in every sphere of life. Uh, we want leaders not just for the church, we want leaders from the church who live out their faith in the daily rhythms, who are able to bring values of the kingdom into the way they do things. I want you to be a compelling minority. I want you, this, this thing of Christian nationalism suggests that we can take over the world. We're not called to take over the world. We're called to be a faithful presence, a city of God within the city of man that shines. And we don't need a Christian majority. We need a compelling minority. That's all God is requiring of us. So folk, let's not be legalistic. And are we separate? And either let's not be party animals. We're in with everything that culture is doing. Let's become an army of subversives who people have to work out. What is it about these people? They're so kind. They're so engaging. They're so servant-hearted. They're not throwing tantrums when things are wrong in the, in the state of the world all the time. Uh, they're mysterious, they're truthful, they're witty and joyful. It's an unusual breed. They start to think, who are you guys? Where do you come from? Take me to your leader. Folk, Jesus was totally distinct. More than that, he was in a different category of distinct. He was other. He was able to hold intention the beauty of holiness 
without walking around with lightning bolts for, with everybody who didn't measure up. He was able to flesh out in the incarnation perfect holiness in a way that was accessible. Accessible. Come to me, all you who are labored, labored and, and heavy laden. I will give the holiest, purest, most other person is saying, I want to include you. True Christ-likeness is magnetic. And we want that kind of distinctiveness that draws people, not pushes people away. People said of him, never a man spoke like this man. Thirdly, Jesus says now, or God says to people, there's a Jesus application, increase, do not decrease in number. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Now, there's nothing prescriptive in this, but it seems like if ever there were a season or a moment in history to say, we're not going to have kids because the world is just so puffy and broken and I just don't want any of those kind of risks and so we're just going to look after ourselves as a couple. I think there are times and sometimes it's through no fault of anybody that we don't have kids, but but I think I want you to see God is not particularly worried about the, where we can grow large, flourishing families that are a blessing to the world. Hmm. And everybody said? No. Two of us. Okay. Folk, raising godly, servant-hearted families is a privilege and a joy. Yes, there's hard work. Yes, parenting is hard work. Yes, you know, parents are hard work. But I want you to see God is not like backing off from the world and saying there's a way, a time. Now, if you're going to grow big families, I want to put it to you by extension. We should be wanting to build flourishing, growing churches. For heaven's sake, folk, we are not planting bonsai bushes. We're not manicuring nice, tidy little groups of disciples all behaving nicely. No, we're the people of God who designed to grow over walls. It's a fruitful vine that grows over walls of diversity, walls over uh, cultural pushback. We are designed to flourish. (coughs) I'm going to take this time off my preaching time. Okay, that's three minutes. (laughs) Oh, my dear. I want to encourage us to realize where we can all be part of this. If we're secure in the doctrines of sovereignty and grace, when when we are this new breed, this different kind of people, they don't smoke. Love those guys. Neither do they. They don't smoke. Neither do they breathe fresh air very deeply. They don't... They don't swear, but neither do they boast in poetry or prayer. They don't gamble, but neither do they take much chance on God. It's all pretty sad and round-shouldered, the great prince lying in prison. We're not supposed to be these people identified by all the things we don't do. We're supposed to be people throwing parties and feasts, and we need to come back to the secret weapon of the church where we can all be involved, and that is hospitality. Guess what? The, in the Greek, the absolute opposite word of hospitality is xenophobia, which means xenosphobia, fear of strangers. Hospitality, xenosphilia, love of strangers. 
We're supposed to be loving. Yes, we can have our bring and share meals. Yes, we can have lots of meals together. But what should categorize us is that we are uniquely not just loving our own. We're loving people that are, we work with, our neighbors, uh, we interact with. We're making space to bring people into the orbit of our lives, and we're learning to put defenses down around meals. Jesus can look at all his parables. They're meals. Look at what he did, how many times it was meals. You don't have to eat everything and worry about your weight. Okay. And so, folk, we're not aiming at mega churches. That's not what I'm saying. We need to realize that what we have is designed to flourish and spread and include. And we're not better than anyone. But the grace of God doesn't just, is not building mega churches, it's building mega hearted churches. People who have more than enough for their own flourishing, that they have to go beyond their borders. Jesus started with a group of 12, and he grew that over the last 2,000 years to just hundreds and hundreds of millions, a few billion people who name the name of Christ. Increase, do not decrease. Fourth one is seek the shalom of the city. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This is unique in ancient literature. Totally counterintuitive. How do we pray for the guys who've just killed our aunties and uncles and kids and family members in Jerusalem? Now we're in this new reality, and we've been called to now love our enemies. Sounds like we needed to be the city within the city. Not the city on the outskirts. Not the city removed, the city of God within the city of man. Augustine's famous call in his book, The City of God. We too know that even there, as we pray, our shalom or the shalom God has is not just for the Babylonians. We want the shalom of the city, the flourishing in every dimension of life. God says, if you see that happening, you need to know you are going to get some shalom. And we can have a shalom out of a relationship with God, but God wants us living in the world where we're making a positive contribution, where we're adding value. <clears throat> How many of you know that it felt like the world kind of closed down during COVID? Do you remember that? Sort of wondered. I mean, Sue and I had some moments where we just sobbed. Not because we didn't think God was sufficient, but because we felt we couldn't protect our grandkids. We didn't know how it was going to end. Is, is the future going to dry up? But there was a little bit of soulish tantrums that we went through. Can anybody identify with that, the uncertainty of that? It was just Sue and I. Don't put your hands up. Okay. In the middle of that, I get a phone call inviting us to, would you consider as a church buying a retreat center, 12 and a half acres, 1,000 square meters under thing. Matt's been there. And I just said, no, we couldn't do it. It's impossible. And then God put some money from a, from a source where I met the person once in my life and helped us secure this campsite. And, uh, and with it, a dream for how to seek the shalom of our city. In the most broken times, when the most desperate times, God gives dreams. He says, I know the plans that I have for you, plans to give you a future. You see, God knows the plans. That's why we have a prayer meeting next Sunday night, and we have regular prayer meetings in our life groups or home groups, whatever you call them. We pray because we believe that God can speak some things, and when God speaks something and calls us, there's the possibility for transformation in little moments, whether it's people's lives or certain communities. And uh, from the beginning of this year, 
after COVID, this whole thing is operational. As, of, as I'm standing before you, I think it's about 1,484 kids, different kids, have been on this campsite experiencing amazing transformation and on the weekends fully booked by churches and all kinds of things. It wasn't a possibility. The guy who sold it to us, they were back to the wall. And all I'm saying is you don't have to be at your best for God to come and awaken you because we certainly weren't. We're coming out of like sobs and then we get this phone call and God like just awakened us to the possibility, hey, stop seeking your own welfare. Stop making it about you and your job and your income. Seek the welfare. What could, it, what could God do in and through our community as we stand shoulder to shoulder? And so that's why we want to listen. Folks, isn't it amazing that Jesus didn't just seek the welfare of this little slice of geography on the planet called Palestine? Isn't it amazing that he went there, but for 2,000 years, Jesus is demonstrating the the servant muscle of the church into all parts of the world. Isn't it amazing that often the church are the first responders? Why? Because we look to the one who died on a cross, not just to forgive us our sins and get us to heaven in the great escape. No, we look to the one who lived the perfect life and our lives are tethered to his. We're in union with him. We're walking with him. Well, that's, that's our call is to reflect him into the world, the one who sought the welfare of every city and every community and every life on this planet. He loved the whole world. Finally, we keep this one, refuse short-termism and false narratives. Do not let your dreams and your diviners in your midst, those guys, Hananiah's mates, deceive you, nor listen to your dreams, which you cause to be dreamed, for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, says the Lord. What are the Hananiah type voices? What's the loudest voice in our life? Because very often it's responsible for, for determining our gloomy pessimism or our sunny optimism. What are the conspiracy theories? What are we listening to on social media? Time for us to aggressively evaluate what is the loudest voice. Hananiah had become too loud a voice and Jeremiah had to take it on and we've got to get back to the scripture, get to the timeless truths of the gospel and submit to that as the only narrative that will last into the future. And the beauty of, why would we do that? Why would we do that? Because Satan came like he comes to people in every generation with a counter-narrative. Satan came to Jesus in, those, in that temptation in the wilderness and gave him those three temptations. And the last one was, uh, you know, all you've got to do is bow down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And Jesus knew all the kingdoms of the world and their glory was just on the other side of the cross. And he just countered that. He said, every time, he said, it is written, it is written. What's he modeling to us? Every time, every temptation, he brought himself under the authority of scripture. I want to say to you, what's the loudest voice is also going to determine the authority that will direct our behaviors, what we choose in this life. You know, I just, I just want to warn us against the Hananiah type voices. And sometimes it's not political commentary, it's not social media. Sometimes it can just be the entertainment which has its own dangerous, seductive possibilities. 
And folk, we're not in trouble in the church because we're overwhelmed by the state of the world. We're in trouble in the church because we're underwhelmed with the grace of God, God's keeping power, the robustness of the church we're a part of. Time to get back to Scripture and listen to what God says. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Folk, we've gone through nothing like those exiles went through. And God comes to his people and he wants to anchor them in reality and he wants to give them hope. It's biblical realism. It's not those two other. And we hold in tension those things. And he says, this is the trigger. This is the key. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. God is calling us to himself not to a different, a particular way of doing church. He's calling us to a, a way of doing life with Yahweh, with God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who is the living head of a church that is going to be there at the end of history and all the other kings and kingdoms will come crashing down. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom came crashing down after his son and grandson and he was judged by God. doesn't matter all the stuff, our, 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 our ambition, um, our godly ambition is God at the center and our dependence on him. Thank you for the gift of being able to share with you. I hope you feel encouraged. I hope you can put your shoulders back and say we are bone of his bone. We are flesh of his flesh. We are the church of Jesus Christ. There's nothing more glorious on this planet that God is building. Lord, I commend to you, my friends. Thank you for Gateway. Thank you for all the storms and difficulties it's gone through and even the future ones it'll go through. Thank you that your grace is enough. Thank you that you know the plans that you have for us. Plans not to harm us. Plans to give us a hope and a future. And I ask you, Lord, make those plans come alive and make us alive in your Son in fresh ways. All this for your glory, your name's sake. And everybody said...